Drawing room over here. You made it. Oh, come on through. Do you fancy drink? What's your tipple? Welcome to the drawing room, a space for intimate and surprising conversation. I'm Andy Park. The friends we make in childhood can remain with us for life. They become the people who have known us through thick and thin, who lift us up when things are down. But in a world of polarised politics, is it truly possible to hang on to friendships that are based on something as simple and pure as the innocence of youth? Those ideas interested the award-winning writer Carmela Shamsi as she watched the responses to Brexit and the election of Donald Trump and they lie at the heart of her new book, Best of Friends. Following two characters, Zara and Mariam, the story is split between the end of the dictatorship in Pakistan when the girls are 14 and the adult women they become in London decades later. And Kamala Shamsi is my guest here in the drawing room. Welcome to you, Kamala. Come on in, take a seat. Thank you very much. You begin your book talking about the movies and the way that female friendship is so often relegated to the background. What is the kind of relationship you wanted to show here? I want to show how at different stages of life, friendship can really be a very central relationship. And and when the novel starts, the two girls are 14. And it's that moment where adolescent friendship feels so passionate and important. And you need your best friend to know everything that's happening in your life. And you need to have a best friend. You know, the worst thing that can happen to you at 14 is not if the person you have a crush on doesn't like you. It's if your best friend finds another best friend. Um, And it was that sort of, that intensity um, of a friendship where you feel you can't really live without each other. Something isn't real until you've told it to the other person. Um, But also I want to start in adolescence where secrets and lies start coming in because people are changing and the things they want are changing. Yeah, there's a lot going on under the surface, particularly in uh, teenage friendships, isn't there? The friendships of youth might be particularly intense, as you say, but you write, once the characters are adults, quote, that so many women my age rely on their friends far more than their partners for everything, from emotional support to belly laughs. Why is that, do you think? Um, Well, I think the friends are the people who you can turn to when things are difficult at home or in your job and they... um, There's a sort of acceptance, I think, that's there between friends um, that isn't always there in other situations. And if they're your childhood friends, they've been with you throughout, through all the stages of your lives, and they know what every loss and every victory means to you. Um, But I also do think that, you know, there's often a point in your life when you're quite young, you you may meet someone, you fall in love, you think, this person is the centre of my life. And then you realise, actually... It's not fair to make one person carry that much weight. Um, There'll just be disappointment. Well, a a marriage can be quite heavy. (laughs) You need to share the the load. And it's almost Mm -hmm. like that analogy that a friendship is like the outrigger and the marriage is the canoe. You need that stability in the water, if you like, to be able to, to manage that weight. And Zara and Mariam have been friends since they were four. That's a very particular kind of friendship, really, isn't it? It is. And and I was really interested in that particular friendship, kind of friendship of a childhood friendship that starts almost before you have individual character or know what you like. I mean, why do you become friends with someone at the age of four? Is it you played hopscotch together? You were sat next to each other in class? It's largely arbitrary like that, isn't it? It's completely arbitrary. And so by the time they're 14, they've already been friends for 10 years. By the time they're in their 40s, they cannot imagine 
not having the other person, but also by the time you're you're quite grown up and you are more set in your character and your values and your opinions, at that point, actually, you get much more picky, I think, about the kinds of people you're friends with. And you may look at your childhood friend and think, actually, if we met today for the first time, I don't think we'd like each other. Uh, that was the kind of friendship I wanted to write about. Of course, uh, in terms of arbitrariness, this friendship across, is across class lines, isn't it? What does that mean for them both, particularly Mariam? I mean, she can take risks that Zara can't. Yeah, I wanted to write about a friendship in which the two are what I call class adjacent. There's not a huge gap. They're both broadly middle class, but but Mariam is is of that kind of upper middle class world where her family is incredibly well connected. They can pick up a phone to make anything happen. And that means they don't really feel there are consequences to anything. Um, whereas Zara's family is, they're middle class, but it's much more precarious. You know, they're living in a military dictatorship. Um, she worries that her father, who's a who's a cricket um, broadcaster, might get into trouble if he says the wrong thing on air. Um, and, and what that means is one really has a sense of of sort of the freedom to do all kinds of things um, and feels that power is on her side. And the other feels that, you know, don't trust the powerful because they will generally misuse their power. Um, and, of course, when they're 14, they don't think about these things too much, even though it's there. But by the time they're in their 40s and they are powerful women themselves, but in very different ways... Uh, those childhood attitudes to power become really significant. You mentioned the, the dictatorship. Mm. Take me to that space that Zara and Mariam are growing up under in Pakistan under General Zia al-Haq uh, and that sort of short time after mm. his death, mm. uh, an extraordinary time for y young people to be coming of age. Yeah, uh, you know, I wanted to write about that period because they are around the same age as I was. Um, and so they're 14 years old when the novel starts. It's early August. This dictatorship has been in place 11 years. They don't remember a time before it. And they can't therefore really conceive it'll ever end. Um, and then one day in August, just out of the blue, the plane he's on explodes and that is the end of him. And, you know, they just assume, well, if a dictator dies, another one takes his place. And But instead they start hearing, no, there'll be democratic elections. And not only are there democratic elections, but a 35-year-old woman, Benazir Bhutto, is voted into power. And to be young and female at the time is extraordinary because until that moment, power just looked male. And suddenly you think, oh, a girl can do anything. Is that what you thought? Um, I don't think I expressed it to myself in that way. But later on, I realized that yet there was just a feeling of, of things opening up. I mean, there was a feeling of excitement that I didn't have the analytical abilities at 14 or 15 to really think through. I was too busy being in it to to analyse it. Um, but there was this sense of possibility and optimism and, and also this feeling that that history is now marching forward in this positive direction and it won't go back. This story is about desire as well as friendship. Take me to that desire mm. of youth in a place where female desire mm. isn't allowed. Mm. So they're 14 years old. And they're both becoming aware of desire in different ways. Zara is becoming aware of her own desires um, and through the shifts within herself and what she wants from the world. But she doesn't want to show it because, you know, it feels taboo 
It's not something that even these two friends really talk very much to each other about. Um, whereas, uh, whereas Mariam is becoming sort of over the course of a summer becomes this voluptuous, incredibly striking looking young woman and becomes the subject of male attention, um, which she enjoys, but she doesn't quite know what she wants of it. Um, and, and, and she also knows that Zara might not quite approve of the fact that she's enjoying this intention and who she's enjoying it from. Um, and it is this whole idea that, that, that female desire and sexuality is something that even the closest of friends uh, don't really talk about because it is just... Individual, I suppose. It is individual. Um, it's something they don't quite understand either. They, they don't know because their mothers don't talk to them about it. And, so, and subject to societal pressures, as yeah, you say. Yeah. exactly. So mm. it's just this sort of secretive and, and weird thing that they enjoy, but it's also dangerous and they don't quite know what to do with it, but suddenly it's there. Running across both timelines is the complexity of being noticed and being invisible and the desire to have a choice in that. Mm. It's a difficult thing for a teenager, very difficult indeed. It is, and that's true, I think, anywhere in the world. Um, you know, it's it's not particular to Pakistan in the 1980s. It's, it's you're a girl, you're enjoying the attention, but there's also something unpleasant about it. I mean, you know, um, so we have Mariam sort of age 14, she's in London for the summer holidays and she thinks, well, my body's changed and suddenly I can't, I don't know my own dimensions because these new breasts are bumping into strangers all the time. And then she realizes it's always men. It's always men. Oh, they're the ones bumping into me. Um, And there's a weirdness about how this feels because you want to be noticed, but you don't want to be noticed in ways that carry a kind of threat with it. Um, And so both those things are going on for them. Is that what you meant by the term girl fear? Um, Girl fear is an expression that that Miriam comes up with at 14 after they they have an encounter. And it's one of those situations where, which I think all women in the world know, um, and I'm sure some men do as well, where you're in a situation and it's exciting and it's thrilling and filled with possibility. And then some little thing happens and you're terrified. and, and I think to, to young girls, it's very particular to the fact that you grow up from a very early age knowing that if you live in a female body, that body is a place of vulnerability and a possible place, a site of violence. Um, and you're just given that knowledge so early on um, that it lives inside you all the time. And, and just the slightest shift in the air or the way someone looks at you um, can activate it. On ABCRN, I'm Andy Park. Carmela Shamsi is my guest in the drawing room. We're talking about her latest novel, Best of Friends. Of course, politics is a thread that runs across both of the timelines in your book, uh, through Pakistan and British politics as well, uh, but also very different you know, contexts. I believe that it was actually Britain and recent politics that brought you to this story in the first place. What was that? Um, well, I mean, there were, there were a lot of different things that, that brought me to... to uh, the story, but one of the things that I was so aware of was in 2016 when Brexit happened, and of course we had Trump across the Atlantic. Not much later, you suddenly heard, started to hear a lot of people say, "I can no longer talk to this person who's been in my life forever, whether it's a friend, a family member, um, a colleague, because we're on opposite sides of this political question." Um, and the interesting thing to me was. People weren't saying, I'm so surprised, I'm shocked to find that my childhood friend or my cousin or my co-worker holds this view. 
they always knew that these differences existed. But until that moment, it was possible to live with the differences. And then that particular moment, whether it was Brexit or whether it was Trump or whatever it is in whichever country you live in, that particular moment made it impossible to ignore the differences. And what I want to do with the novel is to have two friends who who do have very different ways of seeing the world, including the political world, um, and that that's always something they've been able to navigate in their friendship until the moment where they have to finally confront it. So what, what do you think is at the heart of that? Is that a lack of tolerance we, or, or the forgetting of tolerance? As you said, we used to be able to mm. speak across the political divide. However, we've just lost that skill in the last decade. I'm not sure people could talk across a divide or they would ignore the divide. It's a slightly different thing. Um, and I think one of the things that that's happened is that the middle ground seems to have fallen away. So it's not that you're arguing over the small things, but because the, the discourse has become so polarised um, that people are seeing it very personally. You know, they, they're seeing the differences not as being about these abstract questions, but um, really about in some fundamental way. The question seems to be, are you a good human being? You know, can you support this if you are a good human being? Um, or maybe... I see you looking at me with contempt. How can I be your friend if you're looking at me with contempt because of what I believe? Um, so I think something, and I think actually the truth is that, I mean, certainly if you grew up in Pakistan, you know that politics is very personal. Um, I think a lot of people in lots of parts of the world thought it was an abstraction and then discovered it was very personal. But the odd thing on the flip side is, I think in Pakistan where you know it's very personal, you're used to navigating the fact that it's personal. Um, and friendships tend not to fall apart over political differences. You can yell at each other and then remember, but actually we also like to have a good laugh. Um, but I think where people are unused to those conversations, the yelling becomes more yelling and it's impossible to then, it, it feels so, so I don't know, it, it, it feels as though something essential in the other person's character is being revealed that you can't bear. And the truth is, in anyone's character, there's going to be something you can't bear and there'll be something else you love. Maybe that's true because yeah. we used to have this etiquette in this country, mm. uh, certainly that it was impolite to speak about politics in social, certain social situations. Mm. Maybe we, we knew that perhaps uh, those differences are too a big, bigger bridge uh, to cross. There is an interesting note in the fake Guardian profile you write mm. about Zara. Mm. Uh, there's a suspicion she takes the government and their policy, uh, policies very personally. Mm. What do you make of that, the, the expectation that to be taken seriously we need to maintain a certain distance or neutrality. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to buy that, isn't it? The idea that that neutra neutrality is doesn't mean that if someone is saying something that is an outright lie, for instance, if a politician is saying something that's an outright lie or they're saying something that is hate speech, um, neutrality isn't to say, well, we'll just get on someone at some point who will have the opposite view. If someone is is lying, the neutral position is possibly to present the fact and say, actually, what you're saying, not true. Here are the actual facts. So, so I think this whole idea of neutrality um, is a difficult one, you know, because people confuse neutrality with balance. Yeah, and becomes a malaise in yes, conversation, and, and, doesn't yeah, it? It yeah. becomes um, a, 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 mm. a non-position. 
It does because sometimes situations are very deeply imbalanced. So what is it to have the balanced position then where you are talking about um, a huge inequality to start with? Mariam understands mm. home mm. in the same sort of deep way that a friend does. What does home mean to you? Mm. How intrinsic is it to the way you interact with others, for example? Um, I've always thought it's strange that people think you have to have a monogamous idea relationship to the idea of home and that's be one place that's home. Um, I have multiple homes, uh, which I think is wonderful. It does. I mean, so Karachi is one kind of home. It's where I grew up. It's where my parents and sister live. And the house that I grew up in is still, you know, it's still home um, in some sense, although I moved away 15 years ago. Um, and there's a version of me at every age in that house somewhere. I can see my seven-year-old self there. Um, but London is the home I've chosen for myself. And that's a different kind of home. It's the home of, of where you say, yes, you and I, we're going to be together. Um, you know, in the way that you can have, you know, the family you grew up with and then the, the families you make along the way. And I think homes are like that. Um, but I also think there is, there's often a feeling of missing out if you move away from one. Um, you realize that your relationship to one home may be with the past. Well, I suppose that's a sacrifice in accepting yeah. the plurality, plurality of homes yeah. or you, you have to agree that you're not always going to be that same person, are you? You're, not, you, you're going to change and it will change and the other home you're in will change you as well. Um, but I like that shiftingness. I like the fact that you can arrive in more than one place and, and feel yourself slightly different in these different homes. Um, so to me, it is... Um, it's never been something that I feel torn about. I feel remarkably fortunate, but I also recognise that that there is often sorrow at the edges where there are things you are missing out on. We touched on this earlier, but you used the term power respects power mm. at one point during the girls' youth. Mm -hmm. What does that idea mean to you and how does it sort of flow across the generations? How does our understanding of power change the way we approach the world? Um, it's a novel that's really interesting in power and, and, and that line power respects power is said quite ruthlessly. Um, you know, it's a sense of actually it doesn't matter if you're ruthless, it doesn't matter if you're immoral. If you have power, then other people in the world will look at that and respect you for it and treat you well. So it's a threat. Um, it is a threat. And that's how Mariam's fa family sees, sees power. But they also see it as protection. You know, if you have it, people will treat you and your family right. Um, you know, you won't fall into certain kinds of situations. Um, whereas to Zara, there are different kinds of power. There is a kind of pow power that is cruel and threatening and seeks only to look after its own. Um, but she also believes in, in another kind of power that comes from the many and comes from different forms of standing up to power. The power of standing up to power um, becomes what her interest is. But of course, those are the... It's, it's also not that easy because we all, I think, have complicated relationships, whereas you can be like Zara um, and be the civil liberties lawyer out in the world really wanting to do good. But you can also be a human being who likes having power herself, who likes being recognized, um, who likes appearing on the BBC and, and you know, 
clinking glasses with the good and the great. So <laughs> it's, it's complicated. <laughs> Speaking of complicated, after you've spent these years writing about friendships, mm. particularly childhood friendships, mm. I wondered if it led you back to any of your own, particularly in Karachi when you were growing up. Um, so my closest childhood friend, um, unlike the, the novelist of The Great Dispar- Differences, was a boy and is. He's still one of my closest friends. Um, and who's interesting to me, when, I mean, he's read everything I've written, but with this book, it mattered to me more what he thought than anyone else. You're writing for one person. Uh, well, in some, in some really, which I wasn't, I wasn't thinking of him you know, in any sort of front of my brain kind of way when I was writing it. But when he was reading it and of everything I read, it's the first time he's been texting me while reading it and giving me his responses. And, and it felt it felt lovely. And it reminded me that actually some part of that childhood friendship and that adolescent feeling of this one person matters more than anyone else. And that some of that, you know, still stays, although now we're almost 50 and living in different continents. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing changes in, on the inside at the very yeah. least. Well, Kamala Shamsi, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you in the drawing room. Best of Friends is out now through Bloomsbury and uh, you're appearing Wednesday the 9th uh, at the Wheeler Centre in Melbourne. Thanks for your time tonight. Thank you very much. You've been listening to a podcast of The Drawing Room with me, Andy Park. For more great conversations, search for The Drawing Room on the ABC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. Podcasts.